0: Well, in the series of messages that we have been looking at at this presbytery, we've been going very systematically, word by word, uh, through that beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and my assignment was to preach on earth. And this is such an incredibly huge, gigantic promise that many people are tempted to reduce it to something a little bit more realistic. And yet when you look at Psalm 37, the psalm that this beatitude came from, uh, it emphasizes 16 times that this promise cannot be reduced in any way, cannot be reduced just to the peoples of the earth or to the land of Canaan or to parts of the earth. It refers to the entire earth and everything that is in it. It applies to the future new heavens and new earth. And uh, that psalm also applies it to aspects of the earth that Jesus right now is advancing and subduing uh, under his feet. It is a comprehensive promise that I think illustrates the greatness of the gospel. The other thing that showcases the greatness of the gospel is that this was not just made to us. This was a promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... And to truly understand uh, all of the dimensions that are involved in this, I think we need to go back to the promise that was made at the time of Abraham and see what a staggering promise this was and the kind of faith that it took to believe this promise. And I'm going to be jumping off from a verse uh, from our New Testament reading. It's uh, Romans chapter uh, 4 and uh, verse 13. Referring to Abraham, the text says... For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, just to get a little bit of an idea of how comprehensive this uh, word promise is, the Greek is epongalia, let me quote from Mounce's commentary. He says, the singular, he epongalia, is used in a collective sense of all the promises made to the patriarchs in Genesis. Robertson answers his own question, but where is the promise? By observing that the word means not just Genesis 12, verse 7, but the whole chain of promises about his Son, his descendants like the stars in heaven, the Messiah, and the blessing to the world through him. It is a promise of the gospel, but as Mounts and many others have pointed out, it's not just the individualistic salvation of our souls— Uh, It is far, far more than that. When God's promise to Abraham is analyzed, you realize it was a promise of the Messiah. It was a promise of the Messiah's salvation and the Messiah making all things new, including a new heavens and a new earth. Psalm 37 says it includes uh, Christ's righteousness given to us. It includes the cutting off from the face of planet Earth of all evildoers, eventually. Uh, It includes shalom, an ever-expanding shalom. And when you study that word shalom, it's a fascinating word uh, that has many different uh, translations to it. Yes, 172 times it's translated as peace, and that's a marvelous aspect of that word. But it is also translated as to heal, to be well, prosperity, safety, welfare, happiness, favor, friendly, to make restitution— to be restored to fellowship, to finish, to be complete, to be whole. Uh, There's a very, very broad range of meaning to shalom. um, And uh, if you look in various concordances, you'll see it's translated 30 different ways in addition to the word peace. Now, here's what one author uh, tried to summarize up the meaning of shalom in one sentence. He said, the various shades of meaning contained in this word all indicate that every blessing, temporal and spiritual, is included in restoring man to that peace with God, which was lost by the fall. And I think that's a a fantastic uh, summary. Uh, God's shalom reverses everything that was lost in the fall. Um, One of my favorite Christmas hymns is Joy to the World, and in verse 3, It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. I love that. (laughs) And um, just as God promised Abraham that he and his seed would inherit the land forever, Psalm 37 says, All of the implied Uh, promises would be forever and ever without end. And even though the fullest expression of this is only going to be realized in the new heavens and the new earth, Psalm 37 makes it crystal clear that we are to begin to possess our possessions even now. And I'm just going to read the first six verses of Psalm 37 so that you can see the all-encompassing direction of the promises of the earth. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And and my point is that the promise of the gospel is so comprehensive. As Romans 8 says, this redemption even applies to our body. It applies to everything that is travailing and groaning in bondage uh, in this uh, sad, fallen world. He begins with the individual in Romans 4, and he expands outward toward everything on this earth, that the individual touches. And so I want to tease apart Romans chapter 4, verse 13, to get a picture of just how big this gospel promise of earth and world really is. First of all, uh, the good news being promised to Abraham was so big that there was absolutely no way that Abraham uh, could earn it. It must be received meekly by faith to put any of our own righteousness or our own merit into this equation makes a mockery of how big, how stupendously big this promise really is. It is utterly unearnable. So reading Romans 4, 13 through 15, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs... Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. You cannot inherit this gospel-renewed cosmos through the law. Barrett says, law, though good in itself, is so closely bound up with sin and wrath that it is unthinkable that it should be the basis of the promise. So it's really no wonder when you dig into this that Jesus said it's the meek and only the meek who can inherit the earth. You see, the meek do not see themselves as the solution. Uh, The meek seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand uh, of the Father. The meek are representatives of the kingdom of heaven, which is invading planet earth, and they are asking not their own will be done. That's not how we pray. It's Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So grace comes from heaven. It transforms the earth and makes the earth inheritable. Second, the gospel promise is so big that it erases all of our sins and it gives to us Christ's righteousness. That's one of the big messages of Paul in these chapters, that our sins were imputed to Jesus, his righteousness was imputed to us, and that, too, is contrary to the meekness that we've been looking at uh, during this week. Uh, the, the proud person has a real hard time saying that he can't contribute anything. He can't build the bridge partway across the chasm. Uh, it is just makes him feel uh, so helpless. It mocks. The true gospel mocks any idea of self-esteem, self-worth, or even self-preservation. Abraham had to die to any idea that he could earn what God had promised to him. And though the gospel produced righteousness within Abraham, thoroughly changed him from the inside out, Paul says that Abraham believed and received by faith the inheritance that God was going to give to him. It's the only way it could be if salvation is of the Lord. And when this earth is finally a world in which only uh, righteousness dwells, uh, we will acknowledge that that righteousness had to come from Christ. That's the only place it could come from, right? And so he, along with the Father and the Spirit, will receive the glory because they're going to all recognize this is a miracle, this is a God thing. This is not something man can produce. Third, the gospel is so big that it embraces the cosmos and everything in it. Let me read that uh, verse again. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Now, the word world is cosmos in the Greek, and it can refer to our planet or even to the universe. And what I want to do is I want to very, very quickly go through 65 promises in Psalm 37, and that's the psalm that this beatitude came from. These 65 promises show how incredibly big the good news of the gospel really is. Now, it's true, 43 of those 65 promises relate to the individual, but they cover so many aspects of the individual's life that even those individual promises are astonishingly big when you start meditating upon them. And here's the point. Until the meek themselves are transformed, they cannot transform the earth. So we're going to start with the individual. First, Psalm 37 promises freedom from fretting over evildoers, verses 1 and 8 says that fretting only causes harm. It'll never transform the earth. It cannot. In fact, it is the very opposite of faith. Uh, And so uh, the greatness of the gospel removes fretting, and like tamed stallions, which is how some people even define that word meekness, it's a tamed uh, animal, tamed stallions whose meekness serves Christ's interests and not our own. Second, Psalm 37 promises us freedom from envy, over workers of iniquity. That's verse 1. And when you are captured with the bigness of what the gospel promise says is our inheritance, we're going to be digging into that a lot more, it's going to evaporate envy from your life. There's nothing from this old world that we could possibly envy. In fact, we're going to feel sorry for these people who have rejected Christ and His promises of the gospel. Uh, We have everything, and we've got to look at life through the eyes of faith And what we are in Christ Jesus, the meek do not envy the world. And I'll quickly go through some of these others. Third, Psalm 37 promises us the gift of trust, verses 3 and 5. Fourth, the gift of a transformed life that now does good, verse 3. Feeding on God's faithfulness, verse 3. The supernatural ability to commit everything to the Lord, verse 5. The confidence that God will eventually bring the promises to pass, verse 5. Personal righteousness, verse 6. Rest, verse 7. Patience, verses 7, 9, and 34. Deliverance from anger and wrath and their harmful effects, verse 8. Delight, verse 11. Peace, verses 11 and 37. I mean, these are all marvelous gifts when you meditate. I'm going through them very, very quickly, but if you spend time meditating on these, it's like, yes, Lord, I need all of these things, and you're saying I can have them by faith, for free, without earning them? Yes, that is what God is offering to us. Fourteen, the ability to be satisfied with very little. That's a blessing. Verse 16. Knowing God's embrace. verses 17 and 24. Assurance that God knows our days, verse 18. Assurance of an eternal inheritance, verse 18. Lack of shame, verse 19. Satisfaction, verse 19. Blessing, verses 22 and 26. Imitating God's mercy and generosity, verses 21 and 26. Guidance, verse 23. Sensing God's approval, verse 23. Secure even in our falls. We've seen that a lot. That's in verse 24. Keeping us from stumbling, verse 31. Never forsaken, verses 25 and 28. Provision for needs, verse 25. Victory over sin, verse 27. Ability to do good and make a difference, verse 27. Eternal life, being a source of wisdom, verse 30. I mean, when you think about it, it's only as we become whole in these ways that we have much of anything that we can offer the world. Uh, I love that passage, um, in Romans, where it says that eventually the uh, the, the nations will become jealous of the gospel. Well, if they look at our lives, is there anything to be jealous about? Do we have things that the world wishes that they have, but they don't? So anyway, the 32nd promise is being a source of justice, verse 30, loving God's law, verse 31. Preservation under persecution, verses thirty two through thirty three, being exalted by God even when we are cast down by men, verse thirty four. Marked or noted by God, verse thirty seven. That, that you meditate on that one, that's an incredible thing that we are noted and marked by God. Able to be blameless by grace, verse thirty seven. Able to be upright by grace, verse thirty seven. Salvation being 100% from the Lord, verses 39 and 40. Receiving strength from God for trouble, verse 39. Receiving God's help, verse 40. Deliverance from the hand of the wicked, verse 40. A life of faith, verse 40. You can see that these are comprehensive promises even to the individual. And brothers and sisters, I would urge you not to live below the promises of God. Too many times we don't have the faith to lay claim to what God says is our inheritance. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our God is so generous. He's got a bank account in Jesus Christ that's got millions, well, probably billions, (laughs) of spiritual dollars, as it were. And he says, ask, ask and you shall receive. We need to be writing checks upon the bank account of heaven, and when we do so, it's never going to bounce. God says if we ask by faith, he will grant these requests to us. Of course, we always have to ask in Jesus' name. Um, Nothing comes unless it's in Jesus' name. If we sign our own name on that uh, checkbook, it's it's going to bounce. Number one, we don't exist. We died in Christ, right? Right. So we no longer exist. If we want to get anything from our bank account, we have to say, in Jesus' name, amen. And if we do that, God said he will pour out these blessings into our lives. He is a God who cannot lie. We must be made whole if the wholeness of earth or the world is to be seen. But then Psalm 37 also gives promises for societal wholeness. And this, too, could be involved in the word cosmos. And let me list seven promises of societal wholeness. First, the eventual disappearance of the wicked. Verses 2, 9, 10, 20, 28, 35, and 36. He has to repeat it a lot of times because I think we have a hard time believing this one, right? He says, I'm going to keep hammering this home. It will happen. It will happen. Uh, the way these promises are worded, I do not think how we, uh, that we can have anything less than a vision of a world in which righteousness dwells. And we're going to see that in eternity, certainly. But some of these verses are saying there's going to be a gradual approaching to that as Jesus puts all things underneath his feet. The second promise is the advancement of righteousness like light, verse 6. Light starts off in the morning very dimly, but it gradually grows and grows until you've got the brightness of the noonday. And then the second phrase of verse 6 gives the third promise, advancement of justice, as bright as noonday sun. And so this promises a gradual extension of the kingdom of light. And it can only be that way when we refuse to hide our light under a bushel. Uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary has got a a study center that does a lot of statistics on evangelism and on world missions, and they say that there are 2.5 billion Christians worldwide. That's a huge growth in terms of numbers. But if there really are that many Christians around, they must not be being very good at being light and being salt. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that if our saltiness is lost its savor, if we were no longer salty, we are good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled underfoot of men. Well, Is the church under the boot of humanism? I think it is. And society is under the boot of of the humanists. Not because Christians are a tiny minority. We are. But because Christians are failing to be salt and light. You know, we could be a small number, but if we take the covers off of those Gideon lamps, the enemy will flee. Because greater is he who is with us than he who is in the world. And so... The light of the kingdom growing from dimness to the brilliance of noonday sun. Fourth, abundance of shalom, verse 11. Now, we've already defined shalom as the reversal of everything that was lost to Adam and Eve. And so verse 11 is promising an abundance of that reversal on planet Earth. It's a pervasive shalom. Do we have the faith to believe that that is even possible? It won't happen without faith because Jesus does not honor us. He honors Jesus. God does not honor us, I should say. He honors Jesus. It's only as we stop having faith in ourselves, or lack of faith in ourselves, and we feel terrible about ourselves, and our faith is fixed on Jesus, that things begin to uh, change around. We need to have faith directed towards Christ, and we'll see these promises being fulfilled. Fifth, an increase of wisdom, verse 30. Sixth, justice, verse 30. Seventh, the righteous ones eventually being exalted in the earth. That's verses 34 and 37. And I would say, I would add here, that it's not as if Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom are growing equally in parallels, the way some people um, uh, look at it, but I see Christ's kingdom growing at the expense of Satan's kingdom. That's the way it has to be. And so listen to the five... Promises of judgment on all evil. First, and this is an important one on the final day of history, in the future, God will right all wrongs on the day of judgment against the wicked, verses 12 through 13 and verse 38. And to that end, the next promise says, We can rest assured God is currently keeping accounts of all of those wrongs, that's verses 12 through 13. When the righteous are being persecuted, that persecution is not. Ignored by God. It is heaping up judgment on the wicked until their cup of iniquity is full. Third, God will bring a just recompense against every wicked person, verses 12 through 15 and verse 17. Fourth, God will eventually cut off all persecution, verse 15. Well, that sure hasn't happened yet, but we're looking forward to it happening. And fifth, Since God's curse is on the wicked, they will not prosper forever, verse 22. But then come the six verses that promise that the meek shall inherit the earth. And I've summarized them into three general promises. First, inheriting the earth, verses 9, 11, 22, and 29. A second, dwelling in the land forever, verse 29. And then third, abundance of shalom in the earth, verse 11. Now, if you read and study those promises, you are bound to have your faith increasing. In fact, I highly recommend you memorize this psalm. It's it's worth memorizing. But as John Murray and Mounts and many others have pointed out, God's promises to Abraham, even though they were fewer in number, are just as comprehensive in scope. Paul was not exaggerating when he said that the promise to Abraham Abraham was that he would inherit the cosmos, however you want to interpret that word, uh, cosmos. It was a promise, I believe, that he would inherit the universe. And as Randy Alcorn points out so well in his marvelous book, how many have read his book on heaven? Wow, you have missed out. That is a marvel. That's my favorite book on heaven, Randy Alcorn's book. It's really, really great. But um, he points out that we were made by God, to enjoy the physical universe, to explore the physical universe, and to take dominion over the physical universe throughout all of eternity. And since we were prepared to do that in eternity, we might as well get busy and start taking dominion right now and enjoying the physical creation right now. God is not rescuing us from the physical. That is a heretical Greek Gnostic uh, viewpoint. No, we're going to inherit the physical And God is preparing us to that end through every scientific, ecological, agriculture, chemical, any other enterprise that you might be involved in. We should glory in God's creation. We should take dominion of God's creation right now if we're going to be inheriting this creation throughout eternity. And yes, there are going to be people playing music. Probably won't be, well, maybe it will be my favorite enterprise in heaven. I don't know. Uh, there will be people playing music, but I am convinced that people are going to be taking every imaginable kind of dominion and learning constantly about God and about His creation uh, forever and ever. And so Psalm 37 commands us right now to dwell in the land, to feed on His faithfulness, to delight ourselves in the Lord as He gives us the desires of our heart. We have an incredibly generous God, and the earth is one of his gifts. But here comes a problem that many people have noted. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't get what they promised, not everything. And we think, uh-oh, did God fail on his promise? Uh, yes, they got a lot of personal promises, but Hebrews 11:13 says, These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So did God lie to Abraham? No. And this is one of the many proofs that I give against full preterism. If there is no future earth in which Abraham will dwell, and if Abraham is only going to be in heaven then the promises of inheriting the earth have not been fulfilled and will never be fulfilled on a full preterist schema, because they want to abandon the physical as a kind of Gnosticism. The heavenly city is only a part of the promise that was made to Abraham and uh, to the other patriarchs. Now, it's a glorious part of it, right? We're going to enjoy heaven thoroughly, But as Randy Alcorn points out, the heavenly city is described as coming down to the earth and eventually will be merged with the earth. God has many, many promises about the transformation of terra firma, the earth, and all that is in it. And so there's an already and a not yet that must be affirmed about this beatitude that we've been looking at uh, during this week. The not yet of the equation is that Abraham didn't possess his inheritance of Canaan, nor did Isaac. Nor to Jacob. Now it's true, some of their descendants did uh, through Joshua, but um, the promise was not just made to Joshua, the promise was made to Abraham. And so, unless God raises Abraham from the dead, which his promise obligates him to do, Abraham will never have fully entered into the promises that God gave to him. There will be a 100% renewed new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. This is ultimately what God's promise was about. And that shows how gigantically huge the good news of the gospel really is. Abraham and his spiritual seed will inherit the cosmos, a renewed cosmos that includes the earth. So you could think of Canaan as being a down payment, you know, uh, if you get the whole house, you've got the down payment too, right? And so if Abraham is inheriting uh, the world, well, the little tiny part that's the down payment, Canaan, he's got that too, right? Uh, he, he will have everything. And so That's the not yet part of the already not yet. There are still some things that neither Abraham nor we have yet inherited. But the already portion of the already not yet was that God richly provided for Abraham everything that he needed, and the same is true for us. And actually, there is even more for us. There are many scriptures that show that now that the kingdom has started, we are beginning to possess our possessions of Canaan under the new Joshua Jesus. I'll just read two example verses. Uh, From Luke 10, 23 through 24, it says this, Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not hear it. And so the coming of the kingdom was at least a part of what was being promised uh, to our forefathers. That implies that we are experiencing now is a part of what was promised. 1 Peter 1.12 says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desired to look into. The New Testament was the time when all things would begin to be made new. Uh, by the way, the first part of the new creation was Christ's resurrection body. That's the first of the new creation. And from that time forward, Jesus is beginning to subdue all things under his feet until every feature of Psalm 37 is fulfilled. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. He has to remain at the right hand of the Father until what? All enemies are put under his feet. And Colossians 1 says much the same. I'm going to read a fair bit of this Colossians 1. Speaking of Jesus, it says... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So keep those words in mind, because everything he created, he's now going to continue to talk about using that phrase, all things. Verse 17... And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. As Hebrews words it, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything in this universe is being right now upheld by the word of his power. Uh, the, the uh, um, what are they called, electrons? Uh, could not circle around the nuclei. You, You could not have gravity working. You could not have the planet circling if Jesus was not upholding all things by the word of his power. And the point is, Jesus is the center of this universe, and Jesus must be the center of our worldview. So everything created by him and for him is sustained by him. But amazingly, he goes on to talk about the elect being so united to Jesus, they are treated as his body. And the more you meditate on that, that's mind-blowing. I can't get into it very far, but that we could be His body. He is the head of the body, the church. It was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. And now we get to the, the, the redemption of the all things. And yes, in the Greek, there's a the in front of all things. He is referring to the all things. He has just finished talking about earlier all of the things created by him, sustained by him, and above which he must have the preeminence. Verse 20 says, and by him to reconcile the all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Can you see how gigantically huge the gospel of Jesus Christ really is? every kind of thing that jesus made in heaven on earth or under the earth is also the kind of thing that it will eventually experience his redemption and yes it's true satan robbed this world from the first adam but the second adam is progressively taking everything back satan is not winning this battle not at all the meek truly will inherit the earth in time and in eternity So here's the way I think of it. Canaan was simply the starting place, not the finish line. It was the prototype, not the finished product. And so it is not at all surprising to see Romans 4.13 summing up all of the promises to Abraham and his seed to involve the cosmos. Canaan was merely a type or a picture of the fuller reality that God would do through his seed, Jesus, and through Jesus to all who are united to Him. The promise is so big, it really takes faith. It takes meekness to believe it and to live it out. Do you have such faith to progressively pray all things under the feet of King Jesus? You know, in Psalm 2, saying to Jesus, the Father says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Well, if we're part of His body, we can be asking on behalf of Jesus... For the nations and the ends of the earth for his possession. And so, if we are meek, and if meekness is like a tamed uh, stallion completely under the master's control, seeking to do the master's will, our passion for extending the kingdom should be as much as Christ's passion for advancing that kingdom. Psalm 72 shows the final goal in history to be a worldwide kingdom and worldwide peace, but it also shows this, this goal is going to take a lot of hard work on, on the part of the meek. I'll just read a few verses of how big the gospel promise is in Psalm 72. "'He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness.'" He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth, on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be His glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. amen. Now, now that we've seen how big it is, what difference should that make? It should make a huge difference in our lives. Let me give you eight applications in conclusion. It should give us confidence that if Jesus came... To completely transform this sin-sick world, he's got the ability to transform our lives as well. Don't shoot beneath the goals that Christ has set for you individually in your sanctification. Believe that the same Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead is right now at work in your mortal bodies. That's what Romans says, right? Second, it can also give us confidence. God cares about our bodies. He cares about the physical world. We are not Gnostics. If Christ's goal is to redeem all things, we can begin applying His redemption to all that we are and have and all that we do, including even our bodies. I mean, every time you get healed, whether it's with means or without means, it is a tiny down payment of the final... Healing that's going to come on the last day. That's the time, Romans 8 says, is the redemption of our bodies, right? But it's not just Canaan that is a down payment. God loves to give all of these down payments. Every time you ask for healing, every time you ask for finances, it's a little bit of a down payment of the final glorious day. And we can be encouraged by that. And So James tells us, uh, when you get sick, just hope for the second coming and the resurrection. That's not what it says, does it? (laughs) No, it says if you get sick, you call the elders. They anoint you with oil. They pray in faith. And why can we pray in faith? Because of the promises of Psalm 37. There's so much that we can claim. But to balance that out, it means that there is a time for the complete redemption of our bodies, and that is the last day of history when our bodies are raised. Full preterism completely neglects this part of our redemption. Any healing we receive is a down payment of that day. But fourth... This means we need to have patience and contentment. Isn't that what Psalm 37 said? We need to have patience and contentment when God does not immediately answer our prayers. Okay, We have far more than Abraham did, and yet he had faith, and God honored his faith. Our future descendants are probably going to have a whole lot more than we have, but we need to be models of faith and faithfulness. Fifth, the knowledge of God's generosity ought to fill our hearts with incredible joy. Romans 5.2 says that since we have access by faith into this promised grace, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. <laughs> I mean, we have no reason to be sourpusses. We have every reason to rejoice. Romans 12.12 12 says we can rejoice in hope. Sixth, The bigness of the gospel can enable us to persevere in the midst of suffering and affliction. Yeah, God did not promise to take away all suffering and affliction. Psalm 37 never said that. Um, You know, you might have bodily aches and other things like that, but Romans 5, 3 through 4 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So, even if our persecutors take away our life, they cannot take away our inheritance. That's the cool thing. We are secure in that. We can face death with confidence. Seventh, the knowledge of the greatness of the gospel ought to stir each one of us up to venture something new and big that's consistent with that big gospel that God has given to us. Take risks for King Jesus. The meek of the earth are not the weak and the cowardly of the earth. Okay? Uh, And I forget now who defined, you know, the meekness as being the tamed stallion. But what is a tamed stallion? He goes out courageously wherever the master tells him to go. He's doing the master's will. He's willing to go into the thick of the battle. And then finally, let the greatness of this gospel promise make you Give glory to God for everything in your life that God has transformed. Don't take the glory to yourself. Romans 4.20 says of Abraham that he was, quote, strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. The true gospel is so impossibly big that no human can take glory for what God has done in our lives without bringing great offense to the gospel, great offense to God. So may we be those who glory in God, glory in His grace. And uh, let's everyone say amen. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, You are so generous. Uh, Thank You for this promise of inheriting the earth. May we not despise any part of Your creation. Since all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus, may we seek to bring our souls and our bodies and our labors and our money and our food and houses and everything into submission to King Jesus. May we be wise stewards of what you have so generously given so that we can be trusted with more stewardship. Give us the faith to believe that nothing in creation can separate us from you, and therefore nothing can rob us of our inheritance, not even martyrdom. We love you. We bless you. We thank you that having given us the Son, you will also through the Son freely give us all things. May Jesus become the center of our worldview and of our lives. And through his grace, may we come to love and joyfully serve you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.